All right, well, it is time to get into God's Word together. Let's open up to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Last week, Pastor Bob took part two of uh, the, the, the death of Stephen, the, the first martyr here in the New Testament. The question that we're answering is, what happens when the rulers of the day try to go and kill all the Christians? That's the question, okay? So they've tried to rough up the apostles. They've tried to silence them. They killed the founder of the faith. They threw the apostles in jail. They really want this whole church thing to die. And so now they're going for the followers of Christ. This is the first great persecution recorded in the New Testament. What happens? Well, what happens, praise God, is the church explodes and advances and grows in number. And that's what always happens when persecution breaks out. The church grows stronger. There's more purity in the devotion. And the power of the gospel is on display for all to see. What are we going to learn today? Well, we're going to learn the meaning of the word resolve. We are going to learn how to be bold witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a new Christian, one of the first things I read that exposed me to the testimonies of those who were martyrs for their faith was Jesus Freaks, a book by DC Talk about martyrs in the faith. And I read this thing cover to cover. Oh my goodness, I can't believe how people are willing to stare down those in power and to say, you will not get me to deny Lord Jesus Christ. All the way back in 303 AD, Andronicus in the Roman Empire had been thrown in prison because he was unwilling to deny the Christian faith. And I love what he was recorded to have said. He said this, do your worst. I'm a Christian. Do your worst. Christ is my help and supporter. Thus armed, I will never serve your gods, nor do I fear your authority or that of your master, the emperor. Commence your torments as soon as you please. Make use of every means that your malice can invent, and you shall find in the end that I am not to be shaken from my resolution. That's resolve. Do your worst. Now look, very unlikely that many people in this room will suffer terrible physical persecution, although we don't know which way the world is going to go. Maybe there are, maybe there's somebody in this room who will die for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we are going to learn is whatever is expected of you in your witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's an everyday effort or a gentle firmness or an extreme act of devotion to Christ, that you will never, never, never deny your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would teach us through these bold witnesses in the early church, the first people to stand their ground and lay down their lives for the gospel. May they inspire us. Lord, we have not yet shed our blood, as the Bible says, in our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, but boy, is the world unhappy with our dedication to you. We are not just seen as different or strange or outdated. More and more, we are being called dangerous because of our extreme views and how those views lead to the uh, hurt of other people. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us to stand our ground, whether silently, whether calmly, whether firmly. Whatever it is, help us, O oh Lord, to be, to be determined in our witness to tell the world that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's become bold witnesses together. Check it out. Chapter 8, verse 1. There's a lot of text here, so the sermon it's going to be a little lopsided, a lot of narrative, point one and two. We're going to camp on point three a little more, okay? So in chapter eight, verse one, it says this, and Saul, you know who that is, right? What's his other name? Saul is Paul, and he's going to write most of the New Testament, but not yet. And I like how Luke, Paul's friend, 
who's writing the book of Acts, doesn't quite, he doesn't quite put a parenthesis like, I know I'm going to share some embarrassing things about my friend Saul right now, but we all know how it ends, so please give him a little grace. He just tells it like it is. Saul is so lost, he's trying to destroy the church. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Maybe he was an official member of the Sanhedrin or an up-and-coming star, uh, but Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Well, why would the apostles be able to stay? A couple of guesses. Maybe it's because they already tried to throw them all in jail and they were humiliated when the angel let them all out. So they're like, well, let's not, you know, let's not do that again. Remember, this all started, though, because the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, were the ones who were now, Stephen's out there, telling those people from around the, the, the region, the world, about Jesus. It seems like it was still going down that vein of, like, all the people who came from out there in here and are talking about Jesus, we're going to get rid of them. We're going to get rid of them in here. We're going to get rid of them out there. So it seems like it was really targeting the Greek-speaking Jews who had lived around the world and come back to Jerusalem. All right. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. House after house after house. Where are they? After house. Get out here right now. Cuffs. Jail. Later he said, and when the time came, I cast my vote against them that they would be put to death. Saul was ravaging the church. He was sending men and women on to glory. They were killing these people. This man is a monster. He thinks he's honoring God, and he's killing the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 I love how it just pauses there. He's just going house to house. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Wow. Write this, number one, write this down. Decide in advance that you will suffer for Christ. Decide in advance that you will suffer for Christ. This is what we see first. The apostles stayed. They didn't, they didn't run for that. Let's get out of here. They could have. They stayed. They served. They proclaimed the tr truth of Jesus Christ. Decide in advance you will suffer for Christ. It has to be a conviction. It has to be something you hold tightly to, that you will stand firm. This doesn't mean that you have to become loud, obnoxious, violent, or unloving. This doesn't mean you have to become polarizing or go and, go and shout at everyone, you're going to burn like bacon. You're no, 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 this is not a call to being obnoxious or unloving. This is a call to be resolute in your devotion to Jesus Christ. Are you a brave Christian? Are you ready to boldly share your faith? You could become one. Just like, do you remember the cowardly disciples who ran away when Jesus was arrested? We are going to stand with you! One chapter later, ah, let's get out of here, we're all going to die. They were cowardly, they failed, but God turned them into courageous witnesses and he can make you a courageous witness too. So decide in advance you will suffer for Christ. There are many stories in this Jesus Freaks book that are inspiring to us, but there was a man in China, 1931, and he was about to be killed, and this, he was a missionary. And 
The man who was going to kill him said, I'm going to kill you. Aren't you afraid? The missionary said, kill me if you wish. I'll go straight to God. But it was his friend, E.H. Hamilton, who wrote a poem after he heard about his friend's death. Here's what he wrote. Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release, to pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, oh, heaven's art, a wound of his, a counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not, baptize with blood a stony plot, till souls shall blossom from that spot. Afraid of that? What a beautiful poem reflecting on his friend's martyrdom. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? I love that. Decide in advance you will suffer for Christ. Jot this down. Many live as enemies of the cross. We are going to suffer because many live as enemies of the cross. Here it was religious people trying to kill the church. That's happened throughout the ages as well. It was the religious people, sometimes even the church, causing the problem. Many claim to be serving God and the common good when they persecute Christians. Today, many enemies live, uh, many enemies of the gospel live all around the world. Persecution doesn't always take on a violent physical form. Teachers might scoff at your faith and belittle you. You're still one of those empty-headed people who believe in talking snakes. You can be belittled at college or high school. Your neighbor can heckle you as he's in his jammies on his porch drinking his coffee and you're going to church. Hey, Bible thumper! <laughs> you're such an idiot! Your family can find ways to make you feel out of date, extreme. You're in a cult. Sometimes people think you're dumb. Sometimes they think you're dangerous. But many live as enemies of the cross. Hey, get used to it. Don't be surprised. We know that when we live our faith out, it's going to create a reaction in the hearts of other people. Several weeks ago, we talked about how envy can play into that. They see you have something they don't, and they don't like it, so they don't want you to be happy anymore. And very often, it's as simple as that. You look happy. You look joyful, right? And let's face it, people ruin good things. They just don't like that you're happy. They don't like that you have something. They don't, and that's why they don't like you. Many live as enemies of the cross. Jot this down. Many of God's enemies will get saved, praise the Lord. Many of God's enemies, this is, where's this coming from? Well, Saul. We know where this is going. In Luke's narrative, this is what it's all building up to. He's, he's intensifying this whole story to convince you that the gospel is true and reliable. Why? Because Saul, who's destroying the church, is going to get saved, and he's going to be God's chosen instrument to go and take the gospel to the ends of the world. Man, if he believed it was true, wow. So it's driving toward that. Many of God's enemies will get saved. Already, a couple weeks ago, many priests got saved. All right, this is what's causing the commotion. So many of God's enemies are getting saved, but not yet. 
Could you name some people in your life right now who are so opposed to the gospel, God, the church, that you would say they will never get saved? Can you list some of those people? Never, never her, never him. It will never, ever happen. Add them to your prayer list. No one is beyond the hope of the gospel. Never underestimate the power of God. Most of the New Testament was written by the man who was killing Christians. Boy, if there was ever a never, it was him. Never, never will he get saved. And God will knock him off his horse soon and show him the light. And I just want to, I, I feel this. I've got, a, most of my relatives are not saved. I was a first-generation Christian in my family. God worked backwards. He got me, then he got my parents, right? Got my grandma. My sister came along. I was the first one, okay? I go to a family party on my side, and they're like, don't ask him. Don't ask him about what he does. Don't. Don't get him started. (laughs) My wife comes from a Christian family. I go to their family party, and they're like, the pastor's here. Pray for the food. It'll be extra blessed. Oh, this is so great. I go to my side, and they're like, hey, Maybe, maybe you're of the same deal. All right, but here's what I want to say. I know you've probably lost heart, and you, you think it's, it's not going to happen, right? I feel it too. Lord, are they ever going to get saved? I feel it. I feel it. I know how you're feeling. But look, many of God's enemies are going to get saved, all right? So we can't lose heart. We have to keep praying for the people who don't know Christ, and, and whether you just get the cold shoulder at the family party or someone's like, you never tell me about that again, you know, you get someone pointing in your chest, whatever it is, whatever it is, decide in advance you will suffer for Christ. What an example these new Christians are giving us. They didn't have advocates in the first century. They didn't, they didn't have rights, right? They, they couldn't appeal to a higher authority, but they had God. So decide in advance you will suffer for Christ. Many live as enemies of the cross. Many of God's enemies will get saved. All right, that's what we see here first. We get that from Saul. And really, the sermon revolves around three people. Okay, Saul, Simon, uh, or Saul, Stephen. I'm messing it up. Saul, Philip, and then Simon the sorcerer, who we're going to get to. All right, let's read on. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Amen. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. So remember, Philip was a deacon, one of the seven, and an evangelist. We learn about him. He's also got four unmarried daughters. We found out, find out later in, in Acts. Lot to lose if he goes on to glory. He's risking it all. He's risking it all. He keeps telling people about Christ. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Jot this down. Number two, proclaim the gospel wherever you go. Proclaim the gospel wherever you go. Philip, go. he's telling people, he's telling the Samaritans. Let's talk about the Samaritans. Who are they? Okay. Uh, bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans are like half Jews. So Jewish mom and not a Jewish dad or throughout the ages, maybe your parents are kind of both Jewish now, but you know, grandma, grandpa, like mixed And they would see that as you're not the best of the bloodline, so you're certainly not as spiritual as Abraham's true descendants. So you're you're like at 
a half-Jew. And, and they would see these people as worthless, dogs. They won't even eat with them, okay? No meals together because they're so filthy spiritually. You've seen it in life where people are treated poorly around you, but very rarely have you seen it where someone actually treats another person like that person can spiritually contaminate you and your family. Okay, that's next level. That's next level. That don't touch them because they can make us spiritually filthy. They're not getting in this house because they can muddy up our, our spirituality. Now that is really a deep bias against people. So they saw the Samaritans as half-Jews. They've had wars. The Samaritans had their own mountain, their own temple. They worshiped differently, but the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah. Woman at the well, Samaritan. Jesus told the story of the good Samaritan. Remember? The good Samaritan. The Samaritan is not supposed to be the hero in any story a Jew would tell. So Jesus was kind of getting ready. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, all Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So this is the mission being fulfilled here. A little background on Samaria. You remember when James and John first heard that uh, Jesus sent out some people into the towns of Samaria and they refused to see him? James and John, do you remember what they said? Do you want us to call down fire to consume them all in the judgment of God? And Jesus was like, knock it off. Knock it off. All right, so a lot of bad blood. And now the gospel is coming into Samaria. There already was a revival when the woman at the well told everybody about what Jesus said to her. They came out, a lot of people got saved. So Philip is now proclaiming the gospel in Samaria. Great things are happening. Great things are happening. The crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. The apostles were the ones doing the healing the exorcisms up to this point, then Stephen had the power, now Philip has the power too. Let's talk about this wonder-working power to cast out demons, to heal any disease or sickness. We did a whole sermon on this several weeks ago. If you want to learn more, you can look that up on the app. But write this down. Understand what the gospel is. Understand what the gospel is. So the, the gospel is not about signs, wonders, hyper-spiritual experiences, manifestations of the virgin mother. It's not superstition, okay? That's not the gospel. We're not supposed to take away from this that we need to figure out how to go and do these miraculous things and become wonder workers. The purpose of signs and wonders was to authenticate that Jesus is alive in heaven and the messengers who were sharing the gospel were, were reliable and you should believe what they were telling you. That's the purpose of the signs and the wonders. Many people missed this. They were there for the feeding of the 5,000, and the next day they came and they're like, I want more bread. And Jesus is like, uh, you're missing the point. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Oh, can we eat you? Get off the bread. Okay, salvation has come to you. Show us a miracle. Sometimes show us a miracle. And Jesus was like, a wicked and adulterous generation wants another sign. We're not wonder chasers, okay? That's not the point. The wonders point to the truth of the gospel. 
Remember also, you have never seen anything like this in your entire life, never on TV, never in person. There is not a person alive who is capable of healing like we are reading in the New Testament, where everyone lines up and everyone gets healed on the spot, no matter what they have going on. Okay, we showed some videos before of the TV preachers and evangelists who take off their coat and start hitting people and they fall down. Look, no one is getting healed there. Okay, you're not seeing a blind person come up and being touched and then being healed. And then the deaf person comes up and is touched and they're healed. And you're not seeing, you have not seen anything like this in your entire lifetime. Don't be deceived. This doesn't happen like this today. Don't be fooled. So that's not the gospel. This affirms for us that the gospel is true and powerful and effective. And you should believe it and you should be born again because the very power of heaven flowed through these original messengers of God. So do you understand what the gospel is? Have you believed the truth that Jesus is alive in heaven? And have you been born again? The message is what you're supposed to believe. Wow! Hearing what Philip is saying, Jesus is alive and he can save you. Wow, I believe that. That's the point. Do you understand what the gospel is? Jot this down. God's word unleashes his power. God's word unleashes his power. He kept telling people the word of God. They heard the word of God. Here's a question that a lot of people are asking. How can I experience God's power and God's presence today? How can, you may are asking, maybe you're asking this question, how can I experience God's presence and his power today? How can I know he's real and know that he's with me? How can I have a connection with the spiritual realm that manifests itself in my life? Well, you could go to Sedona and find a vortex. Have you been to Sedona? They've got these places where allegedly you can hack into the spiritual nature and all that. They've got a map. You can go to all the vortexes and maybe have a spiritual experience. No, no. You have to hear what Christ is saying from heaven and believe. God's word is how you experience the power and presence of God. That is what we're hearing here. When you hear the word of God and you believe Jesus is Lord and risen, you become a new creation if you believe that. That's better than a new foot. That's better than a healed body. That's better than anything else you can want in this world. To become a new creation. Fit to dwell in the eternal presence of God. That is amazing. Have you heard the word of God and have you believed the paralytic, you know the story, the friends dug through the roof and lowered down their friend, the paralytic, remember that? What did Jesus say to him first? Your sins are forgiven. And they were like, and Jesus goes, so that you will know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. Okay, greater first, greater miracle first, all of his sins are gone. And then what came second? I fixed your feet. Okay. Don't get those mixed up. Our vision as a church out there in the community is to bring this message, the gospel, wherever we go. Do you know that we have a seven-mile radius as a church, and within that seven-mile radius, there's half a million people who need to hear the gospel? Do you know over the next thousand days, we are going to tell them about Jesus? Wherever you are, God has you there so that you can be a light. There are many ways that you can tell other people about Jesus. You can invite them to church. You can do a service project to show them the love of Christ. 
You can get in a local parade and promote that there's a church they could come visit. You can invite neighbors to do a Bible study. There's hundreds of ways. We're launching this vision Easter weekend, but we want you, when you go home today, I want you to get out of your car and look around and see that God has you right there on that street to help these people find Jesus. Do you know when a lot of people look to their future, if you say, well, what's your vision for Chicago in the future? Do you know what? Their vision for the future would be, I want to subtract Chicago from my life. I'm going to go to, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go to Indiana or Arizona or Florida. I can't wait to get out of here. Listen, as long as you're in this church, we're going to challenge you to have a bigger vision than that. Because there are people all around you who need Jesus. Catch the vision. I love what it says here in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Don't you want there to be much joy in this city for Jesus Christ? Don't you think it could happen? I think you don't think it can happen. I think you've got little faith. And you look around, it's too corrupt, it's too dark, it's too this, it's too that. Hey, where's your faith? Where is your faith? Let's think bigger than that. Proclaim the gospel wherever you go. Understand what the gospel is. Know that it's God's word that unleashes his power. Jot this down. And God's spirit brings his presence. God's spirit brings his presence. This point is drawn out of the context. So God's word is in this passage, but it's the surrounding context where we get this point. Where was Philip's power coming from? It was coming from God's spirit. We know in chapter 6, verse 3, where Philip was first mentioned and Stephen was first mentioned, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. It says in verse 8 of chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and power. That's synonymous with the Spirit. And it says in chapter 8, verse 29, which is coming, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over to join this chariot. And it says in chapter 8, verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. So it's clear where his power is coming from. God's Spirit brings his presence. Here's a quote by John Stott that's pretty powerful. We'll put this up on the screen. Here's what it says. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There could be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the Spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the Spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. So you're not going to have all these great answers. Oh, I've, been, I've been thinking of what to say to Aunt Trudy at the Easter party coming up. I'm going to share my mind with her and tell her she's wrong. No, no, it's the Spirit in you that's going to show other people what they need, okay? So God's Spirit brings his presence. Okay, number one, decide in advance you'll suffer for Christ. That's Saul and the early church. Number two, proclaim the gospel wherever you go. That's Philip. Now let's get to Simon the sorcerer. Simon the what? Simon the sorcerer. Jot this down. Number three, beware living for your own fame, fortune, and glory. A cautionary tale. Beware living for your own fame, fortune, and glory. So it says here in verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. 
saying that he himself was somebody great. Now look, this is like Penn and Teller, all right? It's not like Simon had a little card deck, and he was like, pick your card. So sorcery, magic, here's what it did. Uh, he claimed to have a greater advantage in the spiritual realm. So if you were to come to him with money, and you had somebody who was giving you a hard time, you could put a curse on him. You had a business deal coming up or a crop, and you wanted it to succeed. Hey, he'd get you ready for that. He knows people in high places. He could put a good word in for you. Uh, you know, so he's, he's kind of your way in to greater spiritual influence. This is Simon the sorcerer. He was a wow factor. Oh, Simon told you you could do wow. He said you're going to get elected. He's the one who told you that person's going to be great. He said he was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. So he had a track record of actually being successful in this, and he was more on the you know, like great and small kind of liked him, so he, he was more on the positive side. He can kind of get some things done for you, you know, and uh, he wasn't like looked upon as this menacing, scary person. Verse 11, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, by the way, key theme there, huge key theme when Luke brings that up, kingdom of God. And the name of Jesus Christ they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Wow, his whole life, wow, what's he going to do next? Wow, he can give you an event. Philip comes to town, he does the, casts out these demons, heals everything on demand, on site, and now Simon is like, wow, wow, this is awesome. He was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Here comes Peter and John back, no longer to call down fire from heaven, but to actually welcome these people into the faith. How cool it is that he's transforming their hearts. Who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. A little theology here. The Holy Spirit, as a norm, as a rule, comes upon a believer when the person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are baptized into the family of faith. You are united with Christ, sealed forever. That's the rule. That's the norm. There were some exceptions in the New Testament. When new people groups were open to the gospel, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Samaritans, Cornelius brings the Gentiles in, and then later John the Baptist's disciples who didn't get the memo, they're going to have a special outpouring of the Spirit too. That's not the norm. So sometimes you'll be taught, well, did you get the Spirit yet? What do you mean? Well, you were saved, but did you get the Spirit? The Bible teaches you need to get the Spirit after you. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The norm, the rule is, the moment you get saved, the fullness of God's presence comes into you, and you are a temple of the living God. So get our theology squared away there. This was an exception, not the rule. <clears throat> it was also to authenticate the messengers and unify the church. So it says in verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon, the sorcerer, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He's wowing people. Philip comes to town, healed, healed. Demon, get out of here, healed. And he's like, wow, that's amazing. Then Peter and John show up, and they're like the top, 
They're like, whoa. And he sees the Spirit coming on people. Maybe they're speaking in new languages. And he's like, I got to have that act in my routine. How much? And that's the way you're supposed to kind of gasp. How much you want? Now we realize, even though he got baptized, there's a problem. There's a problem. Uh-oh. Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Temptation for Peter and John. Oh, we can make money on this? Hmm, let's do the math here. Well, we, we could give him that power. All he needs to do is tell people the gospel and put his hands on them, and then they could get the gospel. We can make some money here on the side. No! They didn't fall for it. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. God doesn't care about your money. You don't give to make God happier with you, do you? And you don't think if your portfolio is bigger than other people's that it's because God likes you so much more. God likes me this many dollars more than he likes you. May your silver perish with you. Godliness is not a means to financial gain, friends. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right, or literally not straight, before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay, what do we learn from this story of Simon the sorcerer? Well, beware living for your own fame, fortune, and glory. Here's a cover of Time magazine where they tell you the 100 most influential people in the world. Artists, innovators, titans, leaders, icons, pioneers. Boring! Hey, where's the savior? Where's the Savior? Top 100. Do you have anyone in there who can save us from hell forever? Nobody? Nobody? Okay, then my response to the top 100 every year is... <sighs> I think Jesus belongs on the cover of that. Person of the year every year should be Jesus because he's the only wow factor this world has ever seen. Wow. And Simon is getting it. Philip, ooh, he's got a power I don't have... Peter and John, whoa, there's something there that I could never even, wow. But he was not willing to let go of the desire for fame, fortune, and glory. Simon rightly saw that it was the spirit that was the true power. He didn't go for the healing. He, didn't, he, he actually got it right. This is where it's really at. But he wanted to buy it. He desired it for selfish reasons. We don't know what happened to him, but church history named him as a troublemaker. And Simonism, it became kind of this, you know, I'm in it for the money, or I'm in it for the power. Sure, I'm a Christian, but, you know, take out your checkbook. The apostles opened up the Samaritans to the gospel. Maybe Simon could have truly gotten repented and become one of the first apostolic figures in the church, but he blew it. Did he even realize he was getting in the Bible? Like, we all do dumb things every day, but thankfully they're not written down in the Bible. And however great he thought he was, he was about to get in the Bible and he was about to make a fool of himself. Jot this down. You can't have it both ways. This is what Simon teaches us. You can't have it both ways. And I just need to say that to us today. You can't have it both ways. 
You can't have your other way of trying to assemble your life and be a somebody and also claim to be totally sold out to Jesus Christ if those things contradict one another. You might think, magic, magic? Who does magic anymore? Those foolish, primitive people. Today, hey, today people all around you are still trying to gain some spiritual advantage through superstition. All right, so remember the Buffalo Hat Man when the Capitol got invaded a couple years ago? Remember Buffalo Hat Man? And he ended up in the chamber up at the front desk with his megaphone, and you might be like, what is he doing holding the American flag? He shared in an interview what he does. Check it out. Here's a video. Let's talk about the spiritual aspect of what you do. And you'll probably do a little bit here before we get kicked off today. Sure. So um, what I do is I practice something known as shamanism. And in shamanism, they sing, they dance, they drum, and they inform the community. They dress up in a way that chases off evil spirits. The singing and the drumming is about chasing off evil spirits because uh, sound actually precedes electromagnetic activity. So when you sing and you drum, especially when you do so really loudly, you end up affecting the quantum realm. And this has been being done for thousands of years to ward off evil spirits, ward off negative timelines, and to basically bring positive energy. So part of the reason why I dress this way is because if we were going to have like a uh, infiltrator or something like that, they'd be a witch, they'd be a sorcerer or something like that on the dark side. So I practice life magic, I practice the light side or the positive side of shamanism, and when they see me, they go, oh, yeah. we, got a, we got a big fish out here. Yeah, magic is still alive. He, he, was, he was affecting the quantum realm in raiding the capital. That's what he was all doing. You might laugh, but there are people all around the world who this is their religion. They know there's a spiritual realm, and there is. They know they can impact it, and he claims to be on the good side. That's kind of Simon the Sorcerer. Well-respected, high and low. He's doing a lot of good for a lot of people. He's got a lot of power, you know. We don't live in a day where it's mainstream to elevate those people officially, but boy, is magic still alive. You'll run into people. I was in an Uber once, and a guy was wearing a lucky bracelet. He had an amulet on and one hanging from his rearview mirror. I was like, what's up with that? He goes, well, it's an Egyptian luck charm. I said, why are you wearing it? Because my mom wants me to. She thinks I'm going to get in an accident. And I'm like, okay. We had a good talk about faith. He's wearing it because his mom wants him to be safe. Very real to her. All around you, even though it's a bit out of the public eye, people will reach for ways to hack into the spiritual realm for some spiritual advantage. Do you have a neighbor who's ever buried a statue? Huh? Upside down, right? Lucky bracelet, crystals, charms. It's because we know we're exposed, we feel afraid, and we want some sort of protection. Or it can get darker than that. It can get darker than that. We want more money, or we want other people to get hurt. And that's what's going on in Africa. We have friends in Uganda, and there's a child mutilation happening in Uganda, what does that mean? They will find kids who have been mutilated by a witch doctor, cut and left for dead. Why? Usually rich families want their money protected. This is dark, folks. So if they pay the witch doctor and offer up a child, their fortune will be secure or expanded. Dark, dark, dark stuff going on today, right now. Missionary that we know of, who I went to school with growing up, sent out an email. Hey, just pray for us. There's always spiritual warfare here in Uganda where we are. Um, but we found a puddle of blood by our gate with a handprint on it. Usually that means witchcraft and someone's trying to do us harm in the spiritual realm. Very real for a lot of people around the world. 
The way this should have happened is Simon should have called for all of these people to get rid of all of this nonsense. In Acts 19, there will be revival in Ephesus, and Jewish exorcists, great story when we get there, tried to add Jesus to their routine, which is what Simon's doing, you know, in the name of this and this spell and Jesus, the demon talked back to seven of these Jewish exorcists and said, I don't even know who you are, beat the tar out of them, bloody, they ran out of the house naked, bloody, one of the funniest stories in the book of Acts, we'll get there, and, and they scream, ah! it's a reverse exorcism, the demon drives out the exorcists. And out they go running, and the whole town was scared to death. What's going on in there? The demons don't believe our magic, but they're really afraid of Jesus. Oh! And everybody burned their magical books. Estimated $6 million worth of this junk was burned, because that's what was supposed to happen, Simon. But he blew it. I would just say that if there is any single thing in your life that reflects magic, some way you have tried to hack into the spiritual realm or gain an advantage or some way you have tried to get back at other people or increase your riches, listen, I am calling you out right now. Throw it in the trash today. All right? It's garbage. It's worthless. Even if it does work, it's the wrong way it's working. And Jesus has a far greater power than you could ever imagine to provide for you and protect you forever and ever and ever. Get rid of it. Let's talk about money. Magic? No. Money? Rival God. Simon wanted money. Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When the Bible brings about a strong rebuke, Simon was strongly rebuked here, I try and reflect that to you. I don't know how magic could be getting away into your heart. If it is, I'm just telling you, throw it out. I don't know how money could be right now tempting you. I don't know. There's a billion ways it could be happening. And if you feel conviction, maybe this is for you. And I know this is hard to hear. But what Peter said is this, your heart is not straight. Maybe that's all you needed to hear today. You know the details of the deal or the this or the that. Listen, your heart is not straight. Get it straight. You know what that means, I don't. Get it straight. Get it straight. God is your God. Money is not. And if you're going to pick, God is the one. The wind in your sails you can't have both in the place of God. Your heart is not straight. Craving cash will make your heart crooked. If there is an opportunity to demonstrate your integrity and preserve your witness, even if it costs you, even if it costs you everything, keep your heart straight. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Jot this down. You must repent of false beliefs and behaviors. Repent. The word here is repent. Repent. Verse 22, repent. Peter condemned him. You're full of bitter fruit and shackles. It could be read, you will be if you don't repent. Poisoned by pride and greed. 
shackled and doomed. Poisoned by pride and greed, shackled and doomed. That will be us if we don't repent and enter into the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Key theme to Luke. Jesus is the rightful ruler of your life. He has a kingdom, you don't. He has a universe, you don't. He's the king, you're not. You have to fully submit and surrender to the one who came down here to die and to rescue you because he loves you. You can't have it both ways. Jesus is not going to join your kingdom. He doesn't care about your fan club. He's not excited about your highlight reel. He's the Savior. He's the Savior. You must repent of false beliefs and behaviors. Billy Graham changed the world. Greatest evangelist of our time. How did he get saved? A traveling evangelist preaching from the back, back of his box truck when Billy Graham was a young man, looked at him and said, you are a sinner, young man. Ta-da. It's all it took. This is a simple message. Billy Graham got it. <gasps> I am. Got saved, traveled the world, telling everybody the same thing. You're a sinner. You need to get saved. Receive the Holy Spirit. You must repent of false beliefs and behaviors and get saved. Have you been saved? Have you been baptized following your conversion? Maybe today is the day you make the decision. Simon didn't fully get there. And then become a spirit-filled witness of Jesus Christ. Jot that down. Become a spirit-filled witness of Jesus Christ. Boy, the desire to be emptied, cleansed, consumed by heaven is the highest form of existence on earth. Empty me, cleanse me, save me, free me, focus me, ignite me, send me, Jesus. That's the heart of the redeemed. I've got one last video to share with you today. Because I know it can be overwhelming when you think, me, hold on, not yet. So it can be overwhelming when I say God wants you to become a bold witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, you may be like, what does that mean? Am I going to die? Most of the time, it's just an ordinary everyday effort where you get to tell people about Jesus who is your king. So one last video I'll show you is a guy who spent his whole life at security of the queen of England after she died. He shared a heartwarming story about his queen. And this is a portrait of what it means to tell people about our king. Check it out. But there was two hikers coming towards us, and the Queen would always stop and say hello. And it was two Americans on a walking holiday. And it was clear from the moment that we first stopped, they hadn't recognized the Queen, which is fine. And the American gentleman was telling the Queen where he came from, where they were going to next, and where they'd been to in Britain. And I could see it coming, and sure enough, he said to Her Majesty, and where do you live? <laughs> and she said, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. <laughs> And he said, well, how often have you been coming up here? Oh, she said, I've been coming up here ever since I was a little girl, so over 80 years. And you could see the clogs thick. And he said, well, if you've been coming up here for 80 years, you must have met the Queen. I and as it. quick as a flash, she says, well, I haven't, but Dickie meets her regularly. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy said to me, well, you've met the Queen, what's she like? And because I was with her a long time and I knew I could pull a leg, I said, oh, she can be very cantankerous at times, <laughs> but she's got a lovely sense of humour. Anyway, the next thing I knew, this guy comes around, puts his arm around my shoulder, and before I could see what was happening, he gets his camera, gives it to the Queen, and says, can you take a picture of the two of us? <laughs> anyway, we swapped places, and I took a picture of them with the Queen, and we never let on, and we waved goodbye. And then Her Majesty said to me, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows us photographs to the friends in America and hopefully someone tells him who I am. I love his last line. They didn't even know it was the queen. They're asking to take a picture with the guard instead of her. 
And what does she say? I hope someone tells them who I am. That Really, you can do this. You can become a brave, bold witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He just hopes someone will tell them who he is. You can do that. You can do that. And all around you, there are people like fools who don't know the king. They don't know the king of the entire world who died to save them. And they're hurting, and they're, they're making fools of themselves in life, and they're desperately in need of what you have. And you get to be the one to tell them, I know him, I know him. You can do it, and God will use you. Well, hey, let's close out with a word of prayer here. Jesus, we give you glory because as the first great persecution unfolded, the church was purified and strengthened. And we want to become bold witnesses for you in our community. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to know that we can speak with confidence, even if we don't have all the right answers, because we know the King. And we can speak with affection and love for what you've done in our lives. We can speak with courage and confidence, even if people don't agree with us. We don't have to be belligerent. We don't have to be negative. We don't have to be... Lord, um, hurtful to other people. We just need to share the truth. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, to grow. And we are all around in our community, Lord, and there are half a million people within the reach of our church. We want them to know you. We want them to have a chance to get saved. Our family members who break our hearts, our neighbors, our friends, Lord, we just pray that you'd give us the opportunity to speak. Lord, we know that it probably won't be where life is at stake, it'll just be over a conversation over the fence or walking the dogs or in the, in the grocery store. And give us those divine appointments this week with people who need to hear the truth. <clears throat> Lord, I pray for anybody here today who does not have confidence that they have been saved and rescued by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to see that their religion means nothing, their moralism means nothing, their charity, their patriotism, how nice they were to their children, how kind they are to animals, all of that is worthless, worthless, worthless because they've sinned and they've fallen short of the glory of God. Only Jesus can save their souls. And I pray that they would say today in their heart, Jesus, bring me into your kingdom, your kingdom. May they abandon all attempts to build their own kingdom and glory on earth. And may they live for the one who died for them starting today. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.